Hello, welcome to the Vertical Podcast. I'm Jackson Zare. All right. It's been a long time since I've been able to get around to making an episode. I honestly am short of excuses. Though I'm taking summer classes, continuing my reading and studying, I have just failed to get to my setup and record an episode. So, I have a few updates. I have a podcast guest, a close friend of mine, named Abraham Quinones, who I plan to have as the first guest on Veridical. When I was picking ideas for guests, uh, my instinct was to go for my friends who have always had brilliant ideas. However, I want to stay true to the philosophy of this podcast that I mapped out in episode one. I don't just want to have people I think are cool on here. I want to have people that I believe actively contribute to relevant topics in um, religion, philosophy, politics, economics. I, I want people that are going to leave my listeners thinking, questioning, and learning. And I think Abraham does well at that. Um, I'm not really going to spoil much about him. I'm going to wait for that um, opportunity to record come up. Uh, should be soon. I also have attempted to reach out to Rosa Brooks. She's the author of How Everything Became War and How the Military Became Everything. I ran a poll on my Instagram for the next book to record, and that book won. And instead of recording a podcast on that, I decided, um, why not reach out to the author? The worst she can say is no. She is moving offices at the moment, so I'm still awaiting a reply. And I will keep y'all updated on that. If I am too under the radar for her at the moment, I will just go ahead and record the episode anyways. There has also been a lot of internal wrestling with how I handle my social media life. I feel like I'm not on social media a whole lot. I do enjoy the funny post, but I also try to follow people I disagree with for the sake of intellectual stimuli. I find following accounts that I find myself opposed to ideologically to be a way to keep myself informed on what others are thinking, and also a way to challenge myself. For that reason, I follow Planned Parenthood, I follow Vox, I follow BuzzFeed, I follow Vice, even though I actually tend to love a lot of Vice's old contributions to media. Uh, I follow political members on both ends of the spectrum. However, there are some other accounts I follow where I wonder if I'm getting less stimulus and just more energy and anger. And I think Charlie Kirk is becoming a um, big culprit of that case. You know, we can recall a lot of philosophers and political commentators that had Trump derangement syndrome, and I feel like Charlie is uh, my equivalent. I find myself commenting things I would never say in person. I find myself thinking things to myself I would never want to be caught thinking. And I find myself getting more angry than intellectually challenged. Now, not to be insulting, but I would never have called Charlie Kirk an intellectual or someone capable of providing intellectual stimuli. And I find his followers to be just miniature versions of him 
but oftentimes holding even crazier views. And this manifested itself into my mind uh, at its strongest yesterday. Since my last podcast, I've had a lot of interactions with his crowd online, a lot of times at my expense. But yesterday, um, Charlie Kirk posted a news feed that Tafari Campbell, a sous chef for the White House, who had moved in with the Obamas after their presidency, has been found dead near Obama's mansion in Martha's Vineyard. So if I'm correct, I don't think I'm super well-versed on the story, but to my knowledge, uh, Tafari worked as a staff at the White House under the Obamas, and when the Obamas were leaving the White House, they decided, uh, why not take this guy with us? They had a brilliant relationship, so I think they hooked him up with a property near their property, or he stayed on their property in Martha's Vineyard, and drowned in the water. Um, at least I think he's drowned. I'm not saying there wasn't a human element to this. I'm not saying malicious interactions are ruled out here. But Charlie Kirk posted this with one intention. To claim, though not explicitly, that the Clinton Crime Syndicate, which of course involves the Bidens and the Obamas, had something to do with this. So there's a lot of speculation that Tafari saw Michelle Obama naked, and we all know Michelle Obama is actually a man, and he had to be put down. There was something he knew. Now this is the claims being spewed by Charlie's crowd. Now, Charlie didn't explicitly say this, but he certainly will not deny it, of course not. And why else would he post it? other than insinuating this idea. Now, we obviously don't know the full story of why Mr. Campbell is dead, but if you're claiming that this death is tied to malicious activity with the Clinton Crime Syndicate, then there's an even bigger conspiracy. So, the Bidens, the Obamas, and the Clintons have all been in the office, and... To my knowledge, when you leave the presidential office, you get, for the rest of your life, a detailed security team. So, all of these people have the U.S. government working alongside them for the rest of their lives, essentially. So, that means the government's in on this. So, assuming the government is in on the Clinton crime syndicate, and they've committed atrocious acts, of course I don't believe this, but going along with it, assuming they've committed thousands, if not more than thousands, atrocious acts, you're telling me they killed this man and left his body out near Obama's property and then allowed local law enforcement and emergency response teams to retrieve the body and have the body? Right? There's an even bigger conspiracy. How evil and nefarious are these people if they can't even commit a simple murder? My point being that Charlie promoting this idea, this insanity on social media, 
and then doing it all under the banner of having a Christian platform or a platform that runs on Christian ideas is insane. And my anger and my inappropriate responses to a lot of the comments has caused me to step back and ask some questions. A lot of people around me are wondering why I don't just block him and other people like him. But I think it's because I'm so interested and I'm so captivated by the fact that he has so many followers that are in my inner circle. I think I'm so attached and mesmerized by this man and the grip he has on me. Right? He's not someone that intellectuals are turning to. He's not shaping policy, but he is shaping culture. And he's shaping culture that I am a part of and that I am in, specifically my religious demographic. However, when I sit and I think of who do I want to be when I'm older? What kind of job do I want? What career do I want? What do I want to be remembered for? What do I want my legacy to be? I want it to be someone who's contributed well to the public discourse regarding ethics and philosophy and trying to increase the net well-being. I don't think Charlie is helping me on this journey. I think he's been a low-tier person as far as society rules him, but a high-priority target in my own mind. And I might have to make a decision and get this man off my socials, but every time I come close to it, I'm just captivated yet again by the amount of mutual followers that don't just follow him for fringe reasons, but support his entire platform. Now, the past two podcasts I've done have involved this man, so I will end my derangement syndrome here. Moving on to the next topic. Not dissimilar to Charlie Kirk is more developments with Russia and Ukraine. I'm not talking about developments there. I'm talking about developments in think tanks and conversations here. Uh, specifically with me, I've been having a lot more conversations with people about the conflict. I've been learning more about the conflict. And my position has not really changed, but I am surprised by the interactions I've had. One person who is a close friend of mine and someone that has been intellectually stimulating for me has even proposed that Russia, in order to be persuaded to end this conflict, should be given um, something of gain, right? We can get them to end this war if we give Russia uh, maybe Crimea or Georgia or a piece of the Eastern Bloc countries. Right? If we give this to him, he will back off. And I'm learning that through more and more of my debates, it's less about knowledge and more about principles. It boils down to what is a threshold that we should intervene and conflict should arise. Now, I'm not a pacifist. I never have been. And I wouldn't even say I'm liberal on asking for U.S. intervention. In foreign affairs. But I do believe there are cases and people who are capable but not willing to partake in discourse 
we would never have been able to end World War II by sitting down with Hitler, or sitting down with Osama, or sitting down with Gaddafi. These individuals weren't wanting to sit down, and they made their goals explicitly clear. And when Putin invades Georgia and Ukraine twice, all within a couple years, he's making his goals clear. Now, I have also spent a lot of time on Russia and Ukraine uh, in a previous episode, but I wanted to bring up that these conversations are continuing, and I'm learning more about the other side. However, I think America and other countries, particularly superpowers, need to set a precedent. If you allow Putin any sort of gains from this, other than punishment, then he is setting an example to other upcoming countries that you can just invade, and when people get tired of the war, they'll give you a reward to stop. That is not a precedent we can have in this world if we are to function as a progressive civilization. Now, there is plenty more to discuss. There's a lot of developments in Israel and Palestine, particularly with Benjamin Netanyahu, I have been intrigued by this guy. I honestly haven't even heard of him till about two weeks ago, and now I just cannot get enough of him in a bad way. It's as if I had to create a supervillain. Who would I pick? I mean, I mean, fictionally, I would create who this man is non-fictionally. I mean, I listened to Lex Friedman's podcast with this man, and I was blown away at the dog whistling and the nefarious attitude this man has. So, lots of developments in Israel and Palestine. I've never really shared my views, mainly because I'm 23 and I'm quite illiterate on the conflict over there. Although I do have principles, and I do have some fundamental beliefs about whether a religion is entitled to a physical nation. I do not believe any religion, including Christianity, is deserving of an entire nation-state, especially when that nation-state has obvious evidence of manipulating laws and policy to oppress a particular group of people. Now, I'm also not a sympathizer with um, Hamas and certainly not a sympathizer with the ideas and philosophies coming from Hamas, which, to my knowledge, is an elected group of people. And so I don't really fall anywhere on this conflict. I certainly think, as long as Israel proves itself to be secular and accepting of all people and becomes a melting pot for the Middle East, it can become a very formidable and respectful nation. But as long as it continues to have a Zionist attitude, I don't see it being able to get the mass support that it will need to flourish. Now, this has been a 15-minute intro. I will get to our topic today. Today I'm reviewing the book Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence by David Benatar. David is a professor at the University of Cape Town. And as far as his material goes, this book is all I've really interacted with 
regarding him. This book is published by Oxford University Press, so it is, um, been vetted quite heavily. And I'm gonna, as I said earlier, be consistent with the ideas I espoused in the first episode of this podcast. I want to be challenged, and I want you, the listener, to be challenged. And even if it's an idea, foreign, confusing, strange, or even slightly demented, if it bears truth, if it bears residue of reality, we need to listen to it. We need to not be formed by our preconceived notions and our desires, but rather by logic, reason, and evidence. And if David Benatar can manage to produce a compelling document, we must take it into account in how we view our world. However, I don't think he succeeds at this. And I guess I should lay out his thesis. His thesis, essentially, is that coming into existence is always a net harm. And by bringing people into existence, you're committing a act that should be condemned. He believes the existence of conscious beings capable of experiencing an onus of negativity is always a net harm. And um, we're going to go through his ideas, through a lot of his arguments and how he defends them, and we'll see how we come out. So, Benatar begins his book by bringing up a relevant philosophical contradiction, and that is the non-identity problem. This idea was championed by Sigmund Freud, and it essentially argues that you can't factor in the experiences of non-existent people when you say, you know, it would be better if I was never born. Well, it wouldn't be better for you because there'd be no you to experience it. Now, at first glance, you might think, well, yeah, obviously. But most of this book is establishing philosophical guardrails. Most of what Benatar conducts in here is just theory and applying that theory. And so minute details or even details that appear extremely obvious still need to be hashed out. However, Benatar views um, the idea of being born and its effects through two lenses, a personal and a societal. And most of the book rests on a societal lens. What does you not being born, um, what is the lengths of effects that it has on society as a whole? But there is a way Benatar believes you can work around the non-identity problem. And we'll get to that later. But as far as your existence, or lack thereof, uh, which is a uh, contradictory sentence because you could not have a lack of experience if you were never born, but that aside, linguistics aside, he talks about the chances of you being born. Right? What are the odds that your sperm was the fertilizer? Well, it's extremely low, yet it was. And so... He essentially says it is the most unlucky thing to be born. It is so rare, so improbable for your specific identity to be born, yet it was. And you essentially won the lottery in the worst way possible. It's actually really interesting seeing how deep into this idea Benatar goes. He draws on uh, David Parfit. Now, I'm not very literate on the works of David Parfit, but my most influential philosopher 
Sam Harris, who we've covered on the podcast before, I believe studied under Parfit briefly and uh, would say that Parfit is his greatest influence. So without ever even interacting with Parfit, I have a lot of preconceived respect for him. And he talks about Parfit uh, being writes a lot about the odds, uh, more than just once sperm is in the uterus, but but even before that, what are the odds of that encounter, uh, that sexual encounter, right? Whether the power going out and your parents wake up, or a train got missed and they met someone, right? Right. The, the odds that they were in the same bar or restaurant or school, all of the factors, I mean, you can multiply it by such a large exponential. And if you believe coming into existence is always a harm, then that is the most unlucky number you could probably conceive. Now, moving on, throughout the book, Benatar takes a lot of strange-sounding positions, but it is through these that I applaud his consistency with his worldview. Now, in this episode, I'll be confronting a lot of topics that I have wanted to talk about on this podcast, but haven't been able to find the appropriate time, and usually I'll discuss relevant topics briefly in the introduction, but some of these topics, such as abortion and uh, reproductive rights and um, the moral imperative to conceive, I've wanted to wait for an opportunity, such as reviewing this book, to fully flesh out. So, moving on, Benatar introduces the idea of antinatalism and also the contradictory pronatal bias. Beginning with the pronatal bias, the pronatal bias is essentially you already being born are biased to life. Your existence makes life seem worth it. Uh, He's basically saying there's a difference between a life worth starting and a life worth continuing. David is not arguing that a life already started, like you the listener have, is worth ending. However, there is something to say about a life worth beginning. David acknowledges that antinatalism sounds anti-child, but he clears that up when he says, My antinatalist view is different. It arises not from a dislike of children, but instead from a concern to avoid the suffering of potential children and the adults they would become, even if not having those children runs counter to the interests of those who would have them. David argues that the antinatalist view is in direct opposition to the pronatal bias, and the pronatal bias is strong, particularly because it evolves through evolutionary processes. The urge for you to subliminally, or not subliminally, carry on your gene pool to maintain the species. He essentially argues that though this is natural, and though this is intrinsic to your existence, that does not give it a moral value. And the moral value is still up for debate. Obviously, he gives this a negative value. But this goes to the longtime argument, championed by Sam and others, that just because it is natural does not make it moral. And following this, Benatar introduces an idea that'll be expounded later, and that is the role of government in reproduction. Now, a lot of people think this only applies to abortion, but not necessarily. There's a lot of cases where governments will give incentives 
to reproduce, especially if the birth rate is dropping. Even in areas where the population is relatively large, if the birth rate drops below an adequate rate of replacement, governments such as Japan often introduce incentives to reproduce, such as tax breaks, rewards, um, educational opportunities. Japan has, in some cases, even tried to instigate reproduction by paying for cruises, nature expeditions, basically giving people the opportunity to, you know, hook up and reproduce. Benatar describes this as the pronatalism at its highest. This is the most bias you can get, is when your country is intervening. Or at least this is the greatest example. I want to interact with Benatar as we go along, and I probably should have said this before I started introducing the book, but um, I disagree with the thesis. I believe the continuity of the human race is not just a good thing, but it is a biblical imperative. I believe the order in the story of the garden to reproduce is not just a recommendation. I do not believe each couple is to reproduce, and I also don't believe um, you should reproduce if you're in a bad situation. Uh, this will be expounded on later. But I do believe it is good for humans to exist and continue existing. With that said, I would ask David, what has changed in between the primitive development of an urge to reproduce? If it was ever even a development, uh, I think with life, that might have just been a given, right? For life to first begin, however it first began, it didn't need to develop an incentive to reproduce. In order for it to reproduce, it must have already been an intrinsic value. And I'm curious about his philosophical and ontological explanation on why that value was intrinsic or developed in that first life form. Now, obviously, I have a position of faith, so I believe the bringing of new life is not just good because serotonin and dopamine uh, provide pleasure, but because pleasure and great experiences are, um, have a much more immaterial aspect to them. And I believe if you could give numerical values to suffering and pleasure, one unit of pleasure holds much more value over one unit of suffering. As one would expect, David, as a materialist, does not get into this. David does not also confront the reason why reproductive incentives were instilled in living creatures, whether through a biblical or religious view or materialist view, however life came about. He never confronts why reproduction was a given in the species. Now, it is possible that, as far as cosmology goes, there could have been possible life that has existed as one unit, right? Maybe there is an abundance of life out in the universe, but it just never reproduces. It's there for a moment, then it dies. This is, of course, not measurable, and as far as uh, life goes that we have been able to observe, it always has an incentive to reproduce. Always. Moving on, Benatar tries to give an outline between um, lives worth living and lives not worth living. He gives it in a, a tiered argument, which I'll list here. One, for something to harm somebody, 
it must make that person worse off. 2. The worse off relation is a relation between two states. 3. Thus, for somebody to be worse off in some state, such as existence, the alternative state, with which it is compared, must be one in which he is less badly or better off. 4. But non-existence is not a state in which anybody can be, and thus cannot be compared with existence. 5. Thus, coming into existence cannot be worse than never coming into existence. 6. Therefore, coming into existence cannot be a harm. Now, this argument may sound confusing, but basically David is mapping this out because impairments or situations in life, whether it be personal disabilities or external factors such as war or famine, might still not make a life worth ending. Right? It might be worth continuing a life. These are his words, or his ideas. It might still be worth continuing a life despite these. David is not really factoring these in right now. He's still arguing that a life not worth living is the life that has never started. Now, again, this sort of contradicts with the non-identity problem, but David addresses that immediately after, writing, Comparing somebody's existence with his non-existence is not to compare two possible conditions of that person. Rather, it is to compare his existence with an alternative state of affairs in which he does not exist. And David would say that the state of affairs, minus your experience, where you don't exist, is net better for society. But after this, David begins to expound on his justification, which I think is where him and I differ the most. We certainly differ on a lot of ideas in this book, but I think this premise, the asymmetry of pleasure and pain, is where I think his whole thesis is steered away. Now, me and my girlfriend have watched Oppenheimer uh, two times. By the time you hear this, it'll be three times. All in theaters, big fans. But um, a uh, quote from the movie is, theory can get you only so far. You know, what do you want from theory alone? And I think, um, even though I'm a fan of philosophy, big fan of philosophers modern and ancient, uh, Benatar's reliance on philosophy purely, rather than subjective experiences, and the ability to predicate those subjective experiences on others, is what he is missing from his whole idea. Benatar establishes the obvious that presence of pain is bad, and that the presence of pleasure is good. But then he writes, however, such a symmetrical evaluation does not apply to the absence of pain and pleasure. And then he implies that the absence of pain is good, even if that good is not enjoyed by anyone, whereas the absence of pleasure is not bad unless there is somebody for whom that absence is a deprivation. Now, when I'm reading this, and when I'm thinking about this, this is a very strong argument. And putting it into words, the intricacies of it, into this podcast is quite difficult for me, but I'm going to give it a try here. When I was first analyzing this, I thought, yeah, but who is it good for? Right? If you say the absence of pain is good, who is that good for? And then I thought, well, it's not good for anyone. There is literally no one to acknowledge that that pain is not there. And when it comes to the potential 
existence of a person, which she applies to the fourth point, the absence of pleasure is not bad unless there is somebody for whom that absence is a deprivation. And he says, well, according to the non-identity problem, there's no one to be missing out on that good. Well, there's also no one to be experiencing that pain. So you can't be factoring in non-existent persons. But it's because Benatar gives heavier weight to one unit of pain than he would to one unit of pleasure. He is thinking only in terms of the interests of the person that could have existed, right? If that person did exist, even though they do not, their interest would be to never experience pain. And because pleasure is worth less, he doesn't think that their uh, desire to be missing pain would be in competition with their desire for pleasure. But I think this is where Benatar messes up. And it's precisely because he discussed pronatal bias. And he also gives a distinction between a life worth living and a life worth continuing, arguing that our lives now, including his own, are worth continuing. So if there was a person to exist, if this idea of a person existed who would be distinguishing between lacking pleasure or having pain, that person would also, by their very nature, have the pronatal bias, and have a life worth continuing. Now, I think maybe I'm reading too much into this. If you're still following, I might have made a non-sequitur out of my argument. I, I'm trying to follow this. <laughs> when you get into just pure philosophy, the contradictions and paradoxes can get quite extreme. But I've been sitting here wrestling with this, and I was wrestling with this while reading. And I do believe that if he's going to factor in the desires and give value to pain and pleasure of a potentially existent person, he must also factor in the pronatal bias and the idea of a life worth continuing, which is exactly what he fails to do in this section. Moving on, David distinguishes between the ideas of bringing forth happy people versus making people happy. And he starts this with writing, Although existing people can sometimes authorize our inflicting harm in order to secure some benefit for themselves, we can never obtain the consent of those whom we bring into existence before we create them. And, again, I'm wondering if David is allowed to make this argument. Is he allowed to make an argument that contradicts the non-identity problem? Right? Can we complain about not being able to get the consent of people that don't exist. Him finding a flaw, I'm not even going to call it a flaw, but for him it's a flaw. Him finding a flaw in the laws of nature and the laws of the universe is not a flaw I'm willing to factor in into questions regarding ethics, morality, and reproduction. And this is another flaw in just operating on theory. So if you were to imagine a world where you could get consent before someone's born, well, they have to exist to give that consent. And then, as the uh, same problem earlier, that person, or that whatever it is giving consent, now has a pronatal bias and is also a life worth continuing. Moving forward, Benatar does bring up something that we are all guilty of, and once we notice it, we can actually start to live our lives noticing it and trying to reverse it or ignore it, and that is ordering bias. 
right? If you order good and bad things in different ways, even though it's the same amount, people prefer different orders time and time again. And you know, if I was to ask you right now, would you rather have something good happen to you and then something bad happen or the other way around? Most people would prefer it the other way around, getting something bad out of the way and then finishing with something good. It's the reason we have the idea of dessert after dinner. It's the reason we say, give me the bad news first. It's the reason when we're looking at a list of chores, we choose the hardest one. Now, I said we should be aware of it, and maybe in sometimes when more efficient, we should try to eliminate this bias. However, when it just comes to purely equivalent values, this bias is there for a reason. And that is what we remember most. We remember the most recent, but also the severity of the most recent. Ending on a strong bad note would leave you a lot more distressed than if you ended on a strong good note and had a strong bad note preceding it. Likewise, if you ended on a strong bad note, you wouldn't really be able to comfort yourself by remembering the good that happened before it. This is why when you break up with someone, you aren't immediately comforted by all the good memories. Right? The, the stinging tone of how it ended rings more. More than ordering bias, David argues that the numerical values that he gives to uh, pain and pleasure are proven with this next point, and that is that life can get so bad, it can get to such a threshold that no amount of good can bring it back. David writes, Arguably, once a life reaches a certain threshold of badness, considering both the amount and the distribution of its badness, no quantity of good can outweigh it because no amount of good can be worth that badness. Now, I think this is uh, just purely incorrect because if you're, if you're using the idea of weight, then if you can measure good and bad, you can measure an amount of good. It might not be feasible. It might not be literally possible. But most of this book is on theory. And if we're just going by theory alone, then by theory, especially with the ordering bias, if you end with a strong level of good, you can outweigh it. And this also factors in people's subjective experiences. And when I was planning to record this, I asked the question, how mistaken are we regarding our quality of life? And is our quality of life an objective measure? Right? So many wealthy people would look at the quality of life of a middle-income individual with a family, and while they're alone in their mansion, think that the quality of life of the person with a family and less money is subpar. And likewise, the person, uh, the middle-class individual, might look at the lonely uh, billionaire as someone who's also deprived of something. Meanwhile, both parties might think on an individual level that their quality of life is quite well. So the question is, are we mistaken about our quality of life? Would we actually be better off never to have been born? Certainly there are people that um, this can be checked off on. And I know that's a charged statement, but uh, I will cover it more deeply later. But just factor in people with agonizing lives, right? The, the people born into civil war, 
the people who lose their legs to crushed rubble from a bombed-out building at the age of two, right? Who, who grow up in a famine uh, with villages ruled by warlords. Right? C- certainly, these lives, um, though maybe worth continuing, were probably not um, good to introduce into the world. But what I'm really curious to get at with Benatar here is who judges the quality of our lives and by what measure? Is it wealth or uh, a tertiary mode of representation, such as assets or location or air quality? Or is it the subjective experience of the individual? Now, people can be mistaken, and I do believe there is an objective order of good. And I also have to admit, I don't have the best metric for that. And I haven't really met anyone that can convince me they have that metric. But I am convinced that people can be mistaken, and oftentimes are mistaken. Sometimes people plainly want bad things, with the intention or the thought that they want good things. I think one of the most resonating examples was of in 2015 in Dubai. A Muslim father was at the beach with his daughter, and the tide started taking his daughter out. She began to drown, and the lifeguard got prepared to go in and rescue her, but the father stopped the lifeguard, and he stopped the lifeguard because he didn't want his daughter to get touched by impure hands. Right? So... He lets his daughter die, drown painfully, when she could have lived, survived, gone on to go to school, have a meaningful career, have children, uh, all these things, but the dad stopped him. And the question is, did the father love his daughter? Well, of course he did. He probably loved his daughter more than many parents here in America love their kids. But his idea of love, and his idea of how to provide that love, was skewed painfully and tragically. And so, this is a prime example of wanting or having the idea of the right thing when it's very much not. So we can measure wonderful things and quality in incorrect ways and even trick ourselves into thinking we're satisfied. To close here, I think Benatar brings up a good point on quality of life and using the metric of quality of life to determine if a life uh, is worth living or not. However, he never provides a basis or a objective arbiter of measuring that quality. Benatar then moves to a very interesting concept. Like I said, I appreciate the philosophical rigor that Benatar goes through in this book. And one of those is living for relief states. Um, By this he means the comfort or feeling of relief you get often entails pain to achieve. You can't be relieved of something unless you were in pain. Oftentimes this relief feels really good, sometimes almost like ecstasy. And David thinks it's bad that we require a point of pain. To achieve that relief. And to this I actually agree. This idea falls under the category of hedonistic theories. And I'll read uh, out of the book here. For the psychological reasons mentioned earlier, we tend to ignore just how much of our lives is characterized 
by negative mental states, even if often only relatively mildly negative ones. Benatar is referencing aging, aches, pains, cuts, bruises, um, even psychological mental states, you know, such as depression, anxiety, anger. When these get relieved, uh, we can often feel quite blissful. But did that bliss uh, only have its veracity due to the negative mental state that preceded it? I'll give my own example here. If you just imagine someone in prison for 10 years, going out and seeing the forest uh, and tasting freedom, they will uh, almost be ecstatic, or you can imagine them to be. Meanwhile, someone who lives in the forest might find it quite mundane. So the higher and more joyful mental state was only achievable through pain, anguish, and deprivation. Now, Benatar does note that pleasant pleasures can be intrinsic to life. You don't always need a negative occurrence in order to spark a positive one. But he does note that the majority of our positive experiences are reliefs um, or desire fulfillments from negative mental states. He writes, Nevertheless, there should be something absurd about living for neutral states or relief pleasures, or about starting a life in order to create more neutral conscious states or to produce more relief pleasures. Now, to be honest, I find this compelling, I find it interesting, although I don't necessarily find it contributive in the broadest sense to his thesis. Rather, I think it presents a challenge for us to recognize how much of our life is desire fulfillment or release states. And are we able to achieve ecstasy, bliss, and this sort of spiritual prowess without having to be in pain or be relieved of something? And I want to introduce the idea of hapasna meditation. This is something me and my girlfriend have been participating in for over a year now. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before. Sam Harris has really been a champion for this in the Western world. And it's all about recognizing experiences and ideas and thoughts and sensations as just occurrences in consciousness. These occurrences and the attention you give them all partake in the theater of consciousness. And when you really step back in a metaphorical way and observe your mind and what you're thinking and the thoughts that arise and the sensations you feel, Pain, pleasure, joy, sadness, anger, anxiety, all of these become just signals, energy, in your mind, in consciousness. Now, I'm still in the beginning stages of practicing, but this isn't necessarily a um, plug for meditation, although I would uh, vouch for it. This is rather to present the idea that contradictions to what Benatar is presenting here, or challenges to what Benatar is presenting, uh, do exist. And I think Hapasna meditation is a good counter-argument to the idea he's giving here. No doubt other similar practices and philosophies exist, and Benatar never really confronts those. So for those of us that do find our lives worth continuing, this is a brilliant opportunity to start recognizing what brings us true joy, and if we can tap in to the experience of joy without having to have a major experience, 
Right? This is best exemplified in the idea of gratitude. There are so many things to be grateful for, even if you're on the bottom of the economic or social class. No doubt most of us have loved ones in our lives. No doubt most of us have a job that we can at least find some joy in. Yet, because of repetitive practices and habitual mundaneness in life, we have casted our previous joys and gratitudes to the side. There is no reason that we don't reintroduce and maintain these. However, the discussion of meditation and mindfulness would take hours and of itself, so I encourage all of y'all uh, to go investigate the progress and mental clarity that can come through that practice. But Benatar's point here does transition well to uh, the next point, and that is regarding uh, Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, in contrast to Arthur Schopenhauer. Maslow's order uh, entailed dissatisfaction. Once you achieve one tier in the hierarchy, you are then granted with a new dissatisfaction, which leads you to satisfy it by achieving the next tier. And Maslow was a critic of our discontent. Meanwhile, Schopenhauer took this discontent to be an inevitable fact of life, noting that our life is in a constant state of misery, and we are just seeking momentary relief. Benatar notes how Schopenhauer believed we cease striving only when we cease living. Arthur Schopenhauer would also have rejected Professor Maslow's claim that happiness is real. On the Schopenhauerian view, suffering is all that exists independently. Happiness for him is but a temporary absence of suffering. Now, again, coming from a position of faith, I find all negative aspects as parasites to good ones. And I think you can reason to it on a practical level as well. Are we in a constant state of sickness, or is sickness a glitch in our body? Well, it's a, it's a glitch. It is not the way we are supposed to be. Right? It, we all get the feeling on a pragmatic and also a philosophical level that war, famine, starvation, uh, these things are parasites. And they have no place in society. They're not the standard. The dissatisfaction from broken bones or broken relationships is exactly in the name. They're broken. They are a perversion, a different state of what it is supposed to be like. And when things are in their proper order, whether it be physically or socially or mentally, then they work well. I believe that unhappiness as a subjective experience is a parasite to our souls, and for those that are looking for a more secular term, for our mental capacities in the day-to-day -day rituals. Moving on, David begins to introduce the idea of the elimination or extinction of the human race. However, he wants to make some points clear first, and he starts by giving some statistics to how miserable life is here on Earth as a justification for the ending of our species. He gives many, but I'm just going to read briefly here. Approximately 20,000 people die every day from hunger. An estimated 840 people suffer from hunger and malnutrition. And regarding infectious diseases, uh, diseases claim about 11 million deaths a year. 
and considering all deaths in the year 2001, about 56.5 million people died. This teeters out to about 107 people every minute. Benatar writes, As the world human population grows, the number of deaths increases. In some parts of the world, where infant mortality is high, many of these deaths will follow within a few years of birth. However, even when life expectancy is greater, we know that more birth leads to more death. Now multiplying the number of deaths by the number of family and friends who survive to mourn and miss the departed, for every death, there are many more bereft who grieve for the deceased. Benatar goes on to note the amount of people that are murdered, the amount of people that die from terrorist activities, the amount of people that die from genital mutilation in less developed countries. Ending on the uplifting note that in the year 2000, 815,000 people decided to kill themselves. And before David transitions all these statistics into justifying the end of our species, he wants to talk briefly about abortion and adoption. Now, many people, especially in the religious camps, argue for a duty to procreate. However, David argues that we have a duty to not create. We have a duty to depopulate, rather. I do want to make a note here on a conversation that I've had with many people that has bothered me quite deeply, and that is on the possibility that sometimes we have a duty to not procreate. This is something I've been quite passionate about, especially when viewing a quality of life in other regions of the earth. Um, I think simply put, if you live in a war-torn country, or if you are under a brutal, tyrannical, enslaving regime, you have a duty to not bring a life into this. If your village is suffering from famine, and you can say for almost a fact that your child will be malnourished, in constant pain, and develop a bloated stomach to die at the age of four, I find you quite repulsive to argue that you have a duty, especially under biblical grounds, a duty to bring a child into that state of affairs. Now, many of y'all may be listening and think, well, of course, who the hell would do such a thing? Well, I have had many conversations with close colleagues and peers of mine that are champions of the faith who argue that you have a duty outlined in the book of Genesis to bring forth children, subdue the earth. And hey, what if your kid is the one to change the state of affairs? Now that's uplifting thinking, but this is where religious ideology becomes less pragmatic. If you're having kids in a war-torn country or bringing a kid in to a famine and you believe you are fulfilling God's desire by bringing a newborn into basically guaranteed death, you are mistaken. And I honestly don't view you any different than someone who argues for abortion after birth. I mean, that is essentially what you're doing. If you can almost guarantee, by facts alone and statistics, that your child has a very, very low chance of living after birth, what's the difference if you knowingly and willingly bring forth that child? On a, another topic, this one might be even more controversial. People think I'm practicing eugenics when I say this. Um, I disagree. I think they don't understand exactly what eugenics is. But I have a firm belief that if you know your child's going to be born with a debilitative or terminal mental disability, you are wrong to bring forth that child. 
Now, I'm still curious on why this gets so much disagreement. Right? If you know your child is going to be severely deformed or severely uh, mentally ill, and you haven't conceived the child already, why desire to conceive that child and bring forth unnecessary suffering? Right? This is where I think the idea, and, and Benatar argues it here, for adoption. Right? There's no reason you shouldn't be able to have child-rearing and bring kids up with your values um, and your code of ethics and to have these children live desirable and fulfilling lives. All of that is attainable through adoption. And with the amount of children in the adoption system, I think that's a moral imperative these days. I, I truly believe we need more people to adopt. But back on topic, I've yet to really hear a compelling argument against why it is moral or good to bring forth a child you know will suffer asymmetrically to others. Of course, suffering's a part of life. Everyone will have suffering. I'm certainly not arguing for the termination of a pregnancy of someone who has a disability. I'm not arguing for the removal or outing of these people. However, if I were to give you two options, you can have a world with disabilities or a high number of disabilities or one with less or none. I mean, obviously, you'd be a madman to choose the, the first option. So, yeah, I can hear the idea that it sounds like eugenics to say we should stop people with severe disabilities from breeding. I'm not arguing for government intervention. I'm not arguing for mandates. But I am arguing that we convince them not to. Right? This is how you don't kill anyone and rid the world of these disabilities, or at least lessen them. Again, this is just my observation, and just with the reasoning and wrestling that I've done mentally, and I'm curious to hear uh, counter-arguments, so please send them forth. I would love to have the opportunity to change my mind, I'd love the opportunity to see another point of view, so please engage with me on this. The next topic that Benatar gets to is one that I've been wanting to discuss on this podcast, but have yet to find the opportunity. And because he spends so much time on the topic, I think now is a better opportunity than ever. Of course, Benatar doesn't need much explaining here on his views regarding abortion. He is very much for. He does not argue for the uh, termination of post-birth, except in some select situations. I, I will read here, uh, David writes, Some late-term abortions after the development of consciousness, and yet even some instances of infanticide, may be morally desirable, if they prevent the continuation of particularly unpleasant existences. And Benatar is, uh, especially for the infanticide, referencing severe instances, such as a, a famine or a war. Regarding my personal views on abortion, and I feel like I've spent adequate amount of time wrestling with this, I tend to ignore all the arguments of rape, incest, a lack of income, a lack of means to provide. I find the question the center, the core of the debate, to rest on the question of what is a life? When does it go from an organic compound to a human life worthy of dignity? When is that point? Many people argue it happens at conception. I have not been convinced of this. 
I do want to note that the arguments regarding rape, incest, etc. Uh, have weight. And those are serious um, topics to discuss. And not having the means to supply for a kid, or provide that kid a life worth living, uh, those should be taken into account, and uh, means and ends should be given to the mother, um, or uh, to the kid at least, meaning, you know, putting the kid in an environment where the kid will flourish. Uh, of course, it goes without saying that these actions must be taken. But as far as whether abortion, uh, terminating a pregnancy, is morally acceptable, or a right, or a given in this society, I think solely and only rests on how you define a life. I believe most of this argument rests on philosophical assumptions. Our scientific instruments are not developed far enough to be able to adequately measure when consciousness is detected. Benatar notes the use of an EEG machine or an electroencephalography machine. The machine records electrical activity of the brain and can provide data about a functional capacity, wakefulness, that is required for consciousness. Wakefulness, it must be stressed, is not to be confused with consciousness itself, Benatar writes. However, it's worth noting that wakefulness is a prerequisite for consciousness, meaning if you don't have wakefulness, or the EEG cannot detect wakefulness, you do not have consciousness. So consciousness, the ability to have experiences, I mean having a soul, is just having experiences, rests on the assumption that you have wakefulness. Now, when consciousness becomes present after wakefulness is up for debate. And a lot of people have taken swings at it. Some believe it's when you acquire language, which means that a baby who cannot talk at the age of a year and a half is not conscious. I believe that is insane. Others have used NFCSs, or neonatal facial coding systems, to evaluate responses uh, in the nervous system of babies. I also don't believe this is an adequate measure of consciousness. But I do believe consciousness and the arising of it is when a life is uh, technically formed. But my problem is, we have no way of measuring this. Now, I'm not one to default on saying it begins a conception. I don't believe that that is a adequate measure. Many people say it is because that's when you get your first new set of DNA. That's when you get a new life form with its own code. However, I don't see a new code or a new strand of DNA as being coinciding with a life. Many of my religious colleagues will reference passages such as I knew you when I formed you in your mother's womb. Passages like this. Um, well, this goes back to some things we discussed in the AMA episode, some things we discussed, uh, honestly, throughout this whole entire podcast, of healthy hermeneutics and how we read Bible verses. If you think the verse referencing, I knew you in your mother's womb, I knitted you in your mother's womb, if you think that is God making a statement about when consciousness and a soul is formed, you are greatly mistaken. Wouldn't God have also known when you were a sperm? And when you were the various atoms of the nutrition that your father ate to form that sperm? Did God not know you then? Was he not part of that formation? Should we then not be eating meat? Or should we then not be spilling sperm? Right? Obviously, I don't believe these things, but this is just following that argument to its logical conclusion. Some people 
just have to reconcile the idea that the Bible does not say anything about abortion. And abortion was practiced in the Bible. Uh, many people threw their babies off cliffs, and we use this as a idea to say maybe we should not be doing that. However, I think that's a very different abortion uh, when one is in the womb, uh, undeveloped, unconscious, uh, without a soul, presumably, versus when one is crying alive and moving and thrown off a cliff to fall on rocks. Um, anyone who's saying that those are similar instances uh, bewilders me. However, in what I just said there, I entailed another argument I hear, uh, and that is the argument that many people who are pro-abortion make, that as long as it's in the womb, you can kill it. Well, this is just a matter of distance and location. This is why I've been hesitant to say I'm pro-abortion. I've been so hesitant because I find the arguments for abortion rather famished. I have yet to hear a good, logical argument for abortion. The argument that it's in the womb, therefore uh, a parasite leeching off your body, uh, that is, says nothing about the dignity of that child. It is purely an argument from location, meaning if that child was to be born, or even able to be born, would it be any different? I mean, I think it wouldn't. I think that is a uh, very lousy argument, and it reaches, and it doesn't reach far. I will share an interesting uh, collection of experiences I've had recently within the past two years. Uh, within the past two years, the Roe v. Wade has been overturned, and the uh, granting of abortion has been given to the states. I did not find this to be a victory. However, uh, I did interact with some people online, some people that I knew from work, and I was astonished by our conversations. As far as the binary opposition of pro-abortion and anti-abortion goes, I've always felt, as I mentioned earlier, that the um, pro-abortionist relies on arguing that the fetus is not a life. I've always felt that that's been their, their core argument. You know, it's just a clump of cells, it's just a bunch of atoms, a bunch of molecules connected, it's a non-living parasite, and all these, if true, uh, were compelling. I'm not saying they were true, but I was astonished when I confronted individuals and they said, no, 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 it, it is certainly a life. Uh, that is a life. It is a uh, life worthy of dignity. However, it's just not a life worth enough. It's not worth more than my convenience. I, I found this in multiple people. The pro-abortionists are dropping the argument of it's not a life and opting out for, it's just not an important life. And as far as the debate goes, if it is a life, we are uh, a life at any stage. The moment it becomes a life, an abortion after that moment, which as I mentioned earlier, I failed to define, that is murder. I mean, that is killing a life. I mean, by definition, there's no other word for it. I don't think we need another word for it. But I fear for the fabrics of society if we are using the idea that it's just not an important life, or it's just an inconvenient life, or it's just an invasive life, as a justification for terminating, killing that life. What does this do if this policy enters uh, politics? Right? What happens? What happens when we carry this, just like the uh, biblical 
verses for explaining when a life starts, what happens when we carry this to its logical conclusions? Are homeless people important lives? Are they contributing? Are elderly people important lives? Are they contributing? Uh, No. And you might think, well, that's insane. It would never get to that. I'm not saying it would, but that's where the argument could get us. And on such a precarious topic, our arguments have to be airtight. Our arguments have to be uh, without any loopholes or caveats, really. And I think the idea that saying it's a life, it's just not a life worth living or a life worth uh, bringing forth and using that as a means for abortion, I think that's a dangerous set of uh, moral guardrails. However, returning to the topic of what constitutes a life, I remain unconvinced of anything. I remain quite agnostic to how we define a life. I mean, I define it as when consciousness arises, but as far as I've heard and read, we have no way of accurately nailing this down. So, for whoever's listening, I'm, just like the last point, curious to hear the rebuttals. I'm always interested in talking about this, I'm always interested in learning more. However, if someone just defaults on uh, a Bible verse or an idea uh, without any actual facts or statistics or science, I think it is purely a scientific question. Uh, I'm not interested in hearing those arguments. Moving on, Benatar begins closing the book by arguing for a phased-out extinction. He argues that a, a complete extinction instantly would be perfect, However, that's not really possible. David is actually trying to concoct a a pragmatic extinction of the human race. And this would be over phases. If you wipe out or stop having kids immediately, there's no one to ensure the sustainability of the people here now. So we need a younger generation to supplement our lifestyles, to keep doing work for us, maintaining our roads, maintaining our infrastructure. This is where the argument that Benatar makes gets quite strange. So he actually argues that some births might be necessary to ensure the phase-out extinction. Sadly, noting that the final remnants of our species should eventually stop having kids and will just have to die an agonizingly unstructured life. Now, there's certainly a lot more caveats in it. And as usual, I never fully expound on the... uh, interests of the book. I always want you guys, especially if I enjoy the book, and I did enjoy this book, I always want you guys to read it for yourselves. I never want to cover too much on this podcast to exhaust the contents and make it not worth reading. This isn't a supplement for reading. But this book did solidify uh, my goals in life into the studying of population ethics. Population ethics before this book was always an interest, but after reading this, I got significantly more interested in the question. As AI, the environment, and society, and population uh, fluctuates and brings new challenges, how we handle these, and the most moral way to handle these, brings forth many questions that I don't think a lot of people in society are really qualified to answer, but sadly will. Population ethics, in short terms, essentially argues for how do we maximize happiness for the most amount of people. And there's a lot of interesting thought experiments you can have with this. Uh, One is, you know, what's better? 
one individual with 100% happiness or two individuals with 99% happiness. And many people may say, well, well two with 99% happiness. But if you have 10,000 people all with 1% happiness, is there technically more happiness in the world than those two? There's a lot of questions you can ask, and these can be broken down into more pragmatic thought experiments. And we need people in our society, in our politics, in our institutions, to be figuring out how to maximize and even measure happiness and well-being in societies. We need these people, so arguments like those from Benatar here, don't have as much oxygen to flourish. Of course, if Benatar is right, then we should heed his warnings and take his advice and begin implementing our extinction. However, I don't believe it's my survival bias or my existence bias that I think he's wrong. I believe he really doesn't fulfill a lot of his arguments and or is inconsistent with his premises. I will note that Benatar does, for about two pages, <laughs> confront religious views in regards to his extinction protocol. However, his approach is quite strange. Instead of just refuting religion and saying it's not something he believes in, though you know he is an atheist, he argues that his views are in a line with various religions, including Christianity bringing up verses how many people in the Bible wanted to cease living, cursing their parents for bringing them forth. However, one doesn't need to think hard on how this is very misaligned and very misconstrued uh, in regard to Benatar's core argument. So I don't even really find spending much time on it uh, worthwhile. And with that, I believe that brings our episode here to a close. Again, I intend on publishing a lot more of these. Though my school semester is starting again, I feel like I've been neglecting this uh, podcast. And this podcast is almost like a child to me. I've been enjoying this, walking through these books with you listeners. Uh, I always get an extreme amount of joy and uh, gratitude when someone gives me feedback or mentions that they've listened to an episode. So I hope this episode finds you well. And with that, I'll close with a quote. Soren Kierkegaard, uh, an excellent figure in theology, noted, With every increase in the degree of consciousness, and in proportion to that increase, the intensity of despair increases. The more consciousness, the more intense the despair. I hope you all find time to read. I hope you all are stimulating your mind. Uh, there's plenty more to discuss regarding the posture of our world. And I hope I get to walk through it with you guys. Thanks for listening. Take care. And God bless. <laughs>